Well, it's great to be back with you again. Thank you for your gracious hospitality for the whole weekend. It's been just a delight. For good questions that we've had, I'll try to give us a couple minutes at least for questions on this important text. We're going to be looking today at Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10. Revelation 21 through 6, talk about the millennium, the thousand years. The only text in the Bible that actually calls this period of time a thousand years. And uh, I want to read for us as we get going uh, from actually chapter 19, beginning at verse 11 and then through 2010. And uh, I'll summarize for those of you who weren't maybe able to join us uh, Friday or Saturday, just a couple things we talked about briefly in a way of approach of the book of Revelation that I think is going to be especially helpful as we look at this passage and try to discern what God wants to teach us from this important part of his word. So hear God's word, beginning at Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make the war against him who was sitting on the, on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with him, with it, the, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. 
they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is God's word. May His Holy Spirit give us wisdom to understand it as we seek to understand this important, important vision. Well, I think it would be an understatement to say that Revelation 20 is a controversial passage. That's, that's way understating it. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 3, God promised a blessing to the one who reads and those who hear and keep the words of this book. But when we read a passage like this and we think about all the disputes and debates that Christians have had over the book of Revelation, especially over what is the millennium, what is its relationship to the return of Jesus in particular, we might think this is just too complicated. We'll have to give up on getting any blessing from this text. But I want to encourage you. There's a great blessing and hope to be gained from this text. In fact, I'm going to try to persuade you what I've become persuaded of, that this is a text that shows us why we can expect that the gospel will reach the ends of the earth and people from all nations under heaven will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I I wouldn't be surprised in a group like this that uh, you have worn one or more of the labels that often are assigned to people when we talk about this. Maybe you've been a premillennialist, Maybe you've been a post-millennialist. Maybe you've been an amillennialist. That is, maybe you think that Jesus is going to come back and then there's going to be a long period where he rules on earth from Jerusalem. Peace, prosperity, long-lasting joy. But then at the end, things will go bad. And then at the end, there will be a glass battle and then we'll have a new heavens and a new earth. Or maybe you're post-millennial. You think... There's going to be a wonderful period before the Lord returns when the gospel is going to go throughout the earth. Not only that, nations are going to become just and righteous and there's going to be prosperity on earth because nations are following the word of God. And then Christ, post-millennium, after the millennium, will return. Or maybe you think that... We're living in the millennium right now, but it's not the kind of millennium that premillennialists and postmillennialists think they are. Well, if one of those labels applies to you, all of those labels have applied to me at some point in my life. I was raised in the church where I was taught Jesus will come back before the millennium. I flirted with at least one brand of postmillennialism, 
And uh, now I really do believe we're living in the millennium, but it's not what some of those other groups think it is. So I'm going to try to make a case for that, and in so doing, showing, show why this is a text that gives us such a wonderful blessing of encouragement, especially for the world mission of the church. Now, you see in your outline that I'm going to give just a couple of preliminary comments on how we approach. We've talked about this more on Friday and Saturday, but I know some of you are just joining us this morning. So I think one of the things we've noticed is that not only the Revelation speaks in symbols, but often the symbols have a kind of a character of paradox. They They seem to be a little out of kilter, and that's because Revelation wants us to not just judge events or institutions by what appears on the surface, but look more deeply. MRIs, CAT scans, that look at the, at the deep surface of things. So we have seen, and we'll hear it again actually in our morning worship in the sermon, in Revelation 5, John is assured that there is one worthy to open the scroll because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered. And then John sees one who is worthy to open the scroll because he is a lamb who has been slain. It's quite a jarring contrast, isn't it? Conquering lion, slain lamb. But it's really the same person. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. We looked a little bit yesterday at how John saw 144,000 Israelites. Well, that's what he heard kind of a census of 144,000 Israelites, 12 from each of 12 tribes, but the tribes didn't quite match up with the Old Testament Israel. And then what John saw was a countless multitude, not just from Israel, but from all the nations and peoples and languages on the earth. Kind of jarring. Keep that in mind. It's going to help us in Revelation 20. Secondly, numbers count. I mentioned yesterday that uh, numbers are not typically in Revelation used to calculate quantities, but they have symbolic significance. So that when, for example, several times in the book, we read that of the seven spirits of God, that's not to lead us to think that there's not one Holy Spirit. In fact, other passages clearly teach there's one Spirit of God. God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Not seven Holy Spirits. But there's something symbolic in that number seven. The Spirit is present everywhere, and He knows everything. He's infinite as one of the three persons of the Trinity. So that's something we need to keep in mind, too, when we think about, especially now, this number 1,000, 1,000. And then finally, we looked at this theme of the long word, recapitulation. I compared it to video replay of a, of a sports event where you see a key touchdown uh, from several different camera angles, often shown one right after the other, focus on the quarterback, fo- focus on the offensive line, focus on the split end who managed to make it into the, into the end zone and catch the pass three times over. Almost instantaneously, you see all three, and that does not mean that your team has suddenly scored 18 or 24 points. It's one touchdown, six points, that's it. So John, in his vision, sometimes cycle through several times over. And one of the results of that is that we can't necessarily expect that the order in which John saw visions is a direct replica of the order of the events that John saw. That Actually, John may see visions later that reflect on earlier events. 
And that's a very helpful to us here in the book of Revelation, and especially in chapter 20. So, four crucial questions. You see them on your outline. What event begins the thousand years? What conditions characterize the thousand years? What event ends the thousand years, according to this book of Revelation? And what do the thousand years say to us? Uh, that's, that's our goal uh, to talk about. So what event begins the thousand years? Now, I wanted you to hear the end of Revelation 19, because if we forgot or ignored the principle of recapitulation video replay, if we forgot that it may not be that the order in which John sees things is the order of events, we might naturally automatically assume that the thousand years begin after the last great battle that we, re- we heard about in chapter 19, when Christ, the Word of God on the white horse, comes and defeats all of his enemies and consigns the beast and the false prophet to the lake of fire. If we assumed that and thought carefully about the opening of Revelation 20, we would be deeply mystified Because as you heard at the end of chapter 19, at the climax of the great battle, the leaders of the battle, the beast and the false prophet, are consigned to the lake of fire. But everybody else who is not in the army of Jesus is slaughtered, is killed. And you notice how at the end of 19, the emphasis was made on all kinds of people being part of the armies that were gathered together to fight against Christ. It was not just the kings and the mighty military leaders, but it was the slave and the free and the poor and the great, uh, everyone. And then we read, they were all killed. Now, why would you be puzzled if you thought that the thousand years were to follow right after that? Well, because the first thing that we see actually starts the thousand years is the binding of the dragon, Satan, so he can deceive the nations no longer. But if everybody who doesn't belong to Jesus was just slaughtered, why bind Satan? There's nobody surviving to be deceived. The followers of Jesus aren't going to be deceived. We're going to see that this last battle in chapter 19 is one camera angle on the very same last battle that we see a second time in chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. So we'll just put aside for the time being the assumption that the last battle takes place and then the millennium starts. That's got a problem with it. Instead, we want to ask what actually John tells us starts the thousand years. And John says what starts the thousand years is the binding of the dragon so he can no longer deceive the nations. In other words, the dragon is defeated but not destroyed for as long as that thousand years lasts. Then he's released briefly and finally destroyed. Defeated but not yet destroyed. Now, if you were with us yesterday morning, that's going to sound familiar because that's exactly the themes that we saw in Revelation 12. Twice over we saw it in Revelation 12. The dragon is waiting to try to 
consume this child, this son, this promised seed of the woman who would rule the nations by it with a rod of iron, the, the, the Messiah promised in Psalm 2. The dragon is waiting to destroy him. But the woman's son is caught up to the throne of God. The dragon is thwarted. He's defeated, but not yet destroyed. So he goes out to try to persecute the woman, the people of God who have brought Messiah into the world. And then the second half of chapter 12, we saw it again. Michael, representative of the angels of God or leader of the angels of God, maybe even at this point really representing and, and standing for Christ himself, wages war against the dragon and casts the dragon out of heaven. And the result of that casting out of heaven, we see, is that he can no longer accuse those who belong to Jesus. The accuser of our brothers has been cast down, for they've defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So Satan not only can't destroy the Messiah, Satan can't accuse those who belong to the Messiah. He, I said yesterday, he, he can't be a prosecuting attorney anymore because he's been disbarred. Uh, he's been cast out of heaven. Now, what, what events are we t- seeing there in chapter 12? Well, we're seeing the events right around the coming life, death, resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. That begins that period where the dragon is defeated but not yet destroyed. Could it be, just think about this, could it be that that same event is what starts the thousand years here? That it's that event that binds the dragon so that he's defeated but not yet destroyed. And particularly now, if John gives us yet another, John's vision gives us another camera angle, we've seen that the defeat of the dragon, really at the cross and resurrection of Christ, meant that the dragon couldn't destroy Jesus, and it meant that he couldn't accuse believers. But now this shows us that there's another thing that the dragon can't do during the span of time, and that is he cannot deceive the Gentile pagan nations the way he had before. He can no longer deceive the Gentile pagan nations because he's bound. Hmm, interesting. Did that happen in the first coming of Jesus? Oh, you bet it did. It certainly did. Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Jesus' critics are accusing him of casting out demons because he's in league with Satan. He's in league with the prince of demons. And Jesus says, that makes no sense. If I were Satan's ally, or worse, his servant... Why would Satan cast out Satan? And then he uses this analogy. He says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first binds the strong man? Same word that we have here in Revelation 20. This is why I'm casting demons out of people who have been as it were, Satan's property. Illegitimately, Satan claimed, laid claim to them, but he tyrannized them, he oppressed them, he possessed them, he controlled them, he exploited them, he destroyed them. But no longer, I've bound the strong man. 
I've tied him up. And he cannot keep these people that he's been controlling in his clutches any longer. I'm setting them free. What's interesting is, when we hear the preaching in the book of Acts, the apostles say, you know, there was a time when the the nations, the Gentile nations outside of Israel, lived in darkness. But now, God is spreading the good news, the light of the gospel to the nations. Actually, Jesus even anticipated that in his earthly ministry. In Matthew 4, we read about Jesus starting his earthly ministry, not in Judea in the south, around Jerusalem, where the population was overwhelmingly Jewish, but instead in Galilee, actually even as early as Isaiah's day, called Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the Nations, because there were so many, by that point, so many Galileans that were of mixed blood with Gentile nations. Remember, this is the territory that the Assyrians had conquered in the northern kingdom, and they'd mixed and, and, and matched peoples to try to keep everybody kind of confused. And so Galilee of the Gentiles, Isaiah speaks of it just that way, and Matthew quotes it uh, in Matthew 4, and he says, this is, Jesus began here because light is going to the Gentiles, to the outsiders. As I said yesterday, even to the Swedes. I'm a Swede, right? So the Gospels already say the darkness that the Gentile nations lived in in the Old Covenant period, to a large extent. I mean, they're the exceptions. Ruth is brought in from Moab, and the Syrian general Naaman is brought in from Syria. But by and large, God focused his light on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their biological descendants. But no more. Now it's to all the nations. Now the promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations through you, now it's coming about. So the apostles say things like this. Acts in Lystra, in Acts chapter 14, Paul and uh, Barnabas say, We bring you good news about the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. And in the past... He let the nations go their own way. Now, that sermon was kind of interrupted by the Lystrans who wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas, but the point Paul's making is something new is happening now. God is now preaching to the nations his light. Even more clearly in chapter 17 in Acts, uh, when he's talking to the philosophers in Athens, God says, uh, Paul says, In the past, God overlooked your idolatrous ignorance, But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's raised Jesus from the dead. Or think of Paul's letter, Ephesians 2, where Paul says, remember, Ephesians 2.11, remember formerly, you Gentiles, you nations, by birth, who were uncircumcised, were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise. Hopeless, and godless in the world. But now, but now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And in the next chapter, he says that the mystery, the secret that had been hidden, not that it wasn't spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures, but it wasn't seen in the Old Testament times, that mystery is that the Gentiles, the pagan nations who used to worship idols, have now become heirs together with Israel 
members of one body and sharers in one promise. What begins the thousand years? Christ comes in his first coming to bind Satan so that he can no longer deceive the nations and keep them in darkness and keep them from the joys of the gospel. So I would contend that chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, really is now a third camera angle, along with the other two that we saw in chapter 12. Christ lives and rules in heaven in the vision of chapter 12, 1 through 6. Our accuser has been silenced the rest of chapter 12. And now the gospel is going out to the nations. Not that all the nations have been reached yet. There's still places where the gospel needs to go. That's why we need missionaries to continue to go out to unreached people and to strengthen the churches that are already have uh, church leaders that have churches in them. But, but the gospel is going out. You see, it's a missions text. Because Satan is bound, the church's world missions has the hope of reaching out to the nations and the Holy Spirit will bring in fruit. That's what begins the thousand years. What happens during the thousand years? What does this text tell us about what happens during the thousand years? It doesn't say a lot about extremely long life. It doesn't say anything about justice among the peoples and the governments of the world. It doesn't say anything about the lack of peace or or the production of peace and the lack of wars. What it says is that what's happening is that, to put it vividly, people who lost their heads for Jesus' sake share in his rule in heaven. I mean, literally lost their heads. People beheaded for the cause of Christ. You see that in verse 4? I saw thrones seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus had not worshipped the beast. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is a scene of heaven. We know that because John leads his introduction to the vision in the very same way that Daniel led his introduction to a vision he received in Daniel chapter 7. First we see thrones... And then we see those who occupy the thrones. In Daniel 7, I saw thrones in heaven. And I saw the Ancient of Days took his seat on the supreme throne. And the court was seated. Actually, in Revelation 4, John says, I saw a throne. And then I saw one seated on the throne. The enthroned one who was radiant with light. He can't even describe, doesn't dare describe the appearance that he saw there. It's a heavenly scene. So here I saw thrones. And notice who he sees. Those entrusted with authority. Our English version here that I'm using, the ESV, leads you to think that the people entrusted with authority are very different from the people who've been martyred for Jesus. But actually the Greek says it's really the same group. The martyrs rule. The martyrs have experienced the first resurrection. They've come to life. Now that really is going to mess with your mind for a minute until you remember paradox. Remember, the lion conquered as the lamb slain. Is it possible that the martyrs have experienced the first resurrection in their death 
delivered from the realm of death, brought into the presence of God. They're still awaiting the second resurrection, which is the resurrection of their bodies. But they have come to life. They share in the victory of Christ, just as he physically, bodily, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven and took his throne at the right hand of the Father. So these souls, earlier we saw the souls, remember, among the seals, seal number five, we saw the souls under the altar and they were asking God, how long until you avenge our blood? When will you give justice? But now we see these souls from a little different angle. Now these souls, they still wait for that day when justice will finally come. But that's not the focus here. The focus here is they're ruling with Jesus at the right hand of God. They've experienced the first resurrection, which is not of the bodies, but it's that demonstration that they have been set free from the realm of sin and death and they reign with Christ. So the, And this also connects beautifully, really beautifully, with the visions in chapter 12. Because the vision in chapter 12 which shows Satan cast out of heaven, that is, prevented from being the accuser any longer. Uh, Remember in Revelation 12, it said that those who hold their faith and testimony even to the death have conquered the dragon. They have conquered the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, which they maintained even to death. What's interesting is in chapter 11, 7, on one side of chapter 12, and 13, 7, on the other side of chapter 12, we're told that the beast conquers the faithful believers in Jesus. In what sense? Well, not that he's defeated their faith, but he's conquered them in that way that the whole world would look at and say, well, they they lost. They were killed. The beast conquered them. But in the middle... Revelation 12:11 The voice from heaven says no actually when the beast quote unquote conquered them by killing them and silencing their witness when that happened actually what was happening 12:11 is they were conquering the dragon who stands behind the beast because they by God's grace by the persevering power of the holy spirit held fast their faith even to the death So what's happening in the millennium is the people are being put to death for their faith. And as they stay faithful, they are conquering the dragon. And so their death, in a sense, is actually their first resurrection. It ushers them into the place of victory and rule along with their risen Lord Jesus. Actually, one of the early church fathers read the book of Revelation this way because he wrote to some of his friends. He was under arrest and it looked like the sentence of death was going to be passed on him. And he wrote to his friends and he said, please don't try to intercede for me. Try to get me a release so that I can go on ministering in this earth. Please don't try to prevent my resurrection, by which he means my coming to life, my dying for the sake of Jesus. So, what's happening 
what's not happening during the thousand years, that the nations are being held in darkness by Satan. He can't deceive them the way he had before. And the way he will, for a little time, just before Jesus returns. That's the other point that Revelation makes very, very clearly to us. But what is happening is that those who are faithful to Christ, whether we're called to shed our blood as martyrs or whether we simply are called to stand fast and not succumb to the domination of Satan and his forces, not receive the mark of the beast. And we looked at that a little bit yesterday. It's not a tattoo and it's not a computer chip. It's being under the control of the evil forces directed by Satan. Those who are faithful to death, however that happens, rule, reign, live with Christ in heaven as we await our second resurrection. Okay, third, what ends the thousand years? Well, it's quite clear in verses 7 through 10 that what ends the thousand years is that Satan is released from his prison and he comes out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth who are called Gog and Magog. Now, those are titles from visions given to the prophet Ezekiel. What happens at the end is that the dragon is released briefly, immediately before the second coming of Jesus. And there, as a result, there becomes a kind of a world conspiracy against the church. See, Revelation gives us hope, but it's not kind of uh, empty optimism. It's realism. There's, it's going to get tougher in effect, before the end. Uh, and when Satan does, it, it, all in the vision it's portrayed as a battle on a certain place at a certain time, uh, but it's really, it, that vision represents something bigger than that. Uh, but he gathers the nations for the battle and at the end of history. Now, there's a little bit in your outline of, on the back of the page here, we're talking about ends, the last battle. I would propose to you that the way that we read and understand the battle at the end of 19 shows us that it's the same battle that we see here in 20 verses 7 through 10. For one thing, even though our English versions don't always show it to us, John sometimes uses the Greek word war or battle, polemos, we talk about things being polemical sometimes if you're kind of adversarial. So that comes from polymos. Sometimes he uses it in a very general way. He uses it without an article that makes it very indefinite. So polymos simply as war or battle means war in general. And we see that a couple times in chapter 12. But he also affixes that definite article when he's talking about a specific battle, a specific war. And one of the times he calls it the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. That's in Revelation 16. But then when he comes in 19, he talks about the battle. And again in chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, the battle. I'm talking about one battle. I'm talking about one last battle. Not two, but one. And I showed it to you. The vision showed it to you once at the end of 19. And then we rewound the videotape and we looked at the period that comes that started with the binding of Satan at the first coming of Christ and leads up to this last great apostasy and rebellion against God 
immediately before the second coming of Christ. Again, that's, that battle is the battle. It's the same battle. And other ways that were shown that it's the same battle is that the language in 19 and the language in 20 both connect to those visions of Ezekiel about Gog and Magog. So it's, again, there's another connection there as well. Uh, and as we already noticed, at the end of 19, at the end of the last battle, as we see it in that vision, everybody who's rebelled against Christ has been killed. So all who oppose the Lamb are killed, kings, generals, mighty men, horses, riders, people, all people, free and slave, small and great. And so the era in which it could have been that Satan would deceive the nations has to precede that because the battle, the battle, leaves no survivors except the Lamb and those who fought faithfully follow him. So that's still to come for us. And what that's going to be like, we don't fully know. It's not going to be a pleasant time to live through. But the church is called to live through it because we see here that when that happens and when Satan, the dragon, gathers the nations together, they are trying to eliminate the church. They're waging war against the camp of the saints, the camp of the holy ones, and the beloved city. Beautiful titles. The camp, like Israel's camp in the Old Testament, of the holy ones. And in the book of Revelation, the holy city is the church, the people of God, all generations from all the nations. But now, besieged, it looks like. The beloved city. Beloved because we're the bride of the Lamb. It looks, it looks really scary. It looks like there's no escape. But at the moment... When we most need it, our champion will come. If you're into the Lord of the Rings, you remember how desperate it looked when our heroes were in Helm's Deep. And suddenly, the riders of Rohan appear and Gandalf. You know, Tolkien is thinking of this kind of a scene where all seems lost, but our champion appears and destroys all of his and our enemies. That's the event that ends the thousand years. Now, we might still ask the question, I have it here on the back of, uh, of, the, of the outline, why does the millennium vision stress that the last battle is so many generations into the future from the standpoint of John and his first century hearers, readers, in the seven cities and the churches in Western Asia Minor? Why a thousand years? Not so that we could calculate out and come up with, oh, it's about to happen. It's a symbolic number. And it's a symbolic number, 10 times 10 times 10. Multiples of 10 count a lot in the book of Revelation as symbolism. I think because God is saying to John and through John to his first century hearers, it's true what I said at the beginning and what I will say at the end of the book, that these visions touch right on your human experience. They're about things that are about to take place, that will take place soon. The time is at hand. That's all true. However, there are some things that are going to take place long after that generation had died. It's going to require 
one of Eugene Peterson's books called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's going to require of the church a long obedience in the same direction. So you may remember that in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter has to answer critics who are undermining believers' faith because the age of the apostles is coming to an end and Jesus hasn't come back yet. And the cynics and the critics are saying, where is this coming that he promised? For since the fathers fell asleep, all that time, everything's continued the same. He's not going to come back. Well, Peter says, no, actually, what you think of as soon or late doesn't count with God. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So don't assume that the Lord is late. He's not late. He's patient. He's drawing in all of those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life through the preaching of the Gospel. He's waiting. He's waiting patiently to preach the Gospel through His church to the nations and gather everybody in. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing that God is patient. If He were not patient, we wouldn't be sitting here 2,000 years later as people who can look for the hope of heaven forever. And we can because God is patient. And the gospel has gone from Jerusalem all the way into Georgia. And even, more surprisingly, Southern California, where I grew up, right? So the patience of God, it's a wonderful thing. It's going to be a 1,000 years, which is to say, for John and his hearers, it's going to be way beyond your lifetimes. There's a long period of time when Satan will be bound, prevented from keeping the nations in darkness, but then he's going to be released. So, stand fast. Stay put. Hold fast to the gospel. Because that patience of God to gather in all of his people from all the earth's peoples also means that the church has to continue to suffer. And that theme of waiting for the return of Christ, thankful that God is patient not to bring Christ back too soon, lest any of his elect not hear the gospel, but also he won't bring him back too late. But that patience of God means that the church has to continue to suffer. I think I mentioned yesterday when we were looking at seal 5 when the martyrs same folks we see here who were under the altar when the martyrs were crying out how long O Lord until you bring justice to those who unjustly shed our blood and killed us for your sake the Lord said to them rest a little while he gave them White robes of victory. Notice these folks have white robes in chapter 20. White robes of victory. And he said, the how long answer, one way to answer that how long is not until every faithful martyr has died. For those who will bear faithful testimony to Christ even to the death, there's a, there's a number. The number's not given to us in Revelation. God knows the number. There's a number of martyrs. Not only a number of believers who are chosen from all eternity in grace who must be brought to trust in Jesus through the gospel. There's also a number of those within that group who are called to give their lives for the gospel. 
And so the thousand years says God is waiting. God is patiently gathering his people. But that means also God is calling his faithful people whom he has gathered to be ready to suffer. Well, what does this say to and about us? Question number four. And I think we are going to have some time for some questions uh, from the floor as well. You see my answer here. First thing, first, first thing is stop whining. Oh no, stop complaining. It could be worse. Uh, and in a sense, I think realistically what the visions of 12... And now this vision says it actually is going to be worse before Jesus comes back. There will be an intensification of persecution globally, not just in one place, an intensification of persecution against the church. Believers in other generations have thought, this is our generation. Look at how the persecution is happening in our generation. It may be our generation, although some of us, we, at least in North America, have been spared so far. But there are certainly, as we've thought about, believers elsewhere in the world who are being called weekly to give their lives for the cause of the testimony of Jesus and the Word of God. But it just puts in perspective the fact that we do, I think, still live. I'm going to say I think. I'm not a date setter in darkness. So don't complain, but instead we should throw ourselves into gospel mission because Jesus has broken the lying serpent's stranglehold on the nations. He's tied him down. God is pushing back the darkness that engulfs the nations. By the light of the gospel, he's bringing it about, carried in the power of the Spirit through his faithful witnesses. But obviously this means we need to gauge victory, the triumph, of the Lamb by God's definition, not by surface appearances. I think if you're anything like me, you find it just the most natural thing in the world to gauge God's love for you in terms of how your circumstances are going rather than in light of what Christ has done for us on the cross. What have I done to make God displeased that I'm having so much difficulty in life? How good have I done? How much... How well have I done in keeping the commands that I'm experiencing so much blessing? That's all wrong. God's love for us is secured in spite of how well we're doing or how poorly we're doing. And in spite of our circumstances, it's secured by what he's done for us in Christ. So, it's also, I think, true for Christians to tend to look at how God is getting ahead or falling behind the kingdom of Satan in the world, in general history, also in light of what we see on the surface of things. Is there an uptick in violent terrorism or not? Now, that's not a good thing. But God can work his kingdom through even when human opponents are becoming more overt and more aggressive in persecuting his people. And that's true of global missions as well. Are there setbacks in the work of missionaries to bring the gospel to the nations? There certainly are. Countries sometimes that have been open for centuries or at least decades become closed and start to tighten down on the church. 
evangelists are slain. Their children fall ill. New believers sometimes relapse into paganism. Colleagues in ministry argue and teams break up. That even happened to Paul and Barnabas. They had to go their separate ways. But the visions of Revelation, our time and place in the midst of the thousand years that John saw in Revelation 20, remind us that the gospel captures the captives of Satan and sets us free. And he does it sometimes in very unexpected ways. So we need that perspective, to look at victory from God's perspective and not our own. I'm going to give us a minute for questions, but I really want to close with a beautiful prayer written by Arthur Bennett. Some of you may know the collection of Puritan prayers called Valley of Vision. And Bennett edited those prayers from basically 16th and 17th century Puritans. But at the beginning, he wrote a poem that's his own prayer called Valley of Vision. And it shows that we need to look at things from a different perspective than we often do. The prayer goes like this. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter the stars shine. So let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. He's caught that, I think, so well. That when we look at things from God's perspective, think horrible things that happen in the life of the world, life of missionaries, in our own lives. When we look at them in God's perspective, they're a way that we can look away and see His glory and His faithfulness. Well, we have about, looks like about six minutes till our close. We have roving mics. Can you hear me? I can. Uh, I have a question about Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, the end of the chapter, and I wonder what your view is on that. Okay, give me the chapter again. I heard 11 through... Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. 11 through 15, yes. Yeah, I... Basically, I think, first of all, that actually, when in chapter 20, the visions run sequentially. So, Satan bound, Christ's first ministry. Thousand years, the whole period that we're living in now where he's restrained. Satan loose, the great last battle. And then, the destruction of all the enemies. And a last judgment. 
And so I do see that this anticipates that there is a great right throne last judgment where, as those verses say, then all the dead are emerged from the grave and from the sea. I would say believers and unbelievers because the crucial factor here is if you're... If your name is not in the Lamb's book of life, then you're condemned forever to, actually, it's unending torment in the lake of fire. But if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, that means he's borne last judgment for you already. And so you enter in then, of course, we have 20 and 21, uh, 21 and 22, we enter into the new Jerusalem. So I do think that there is that last judgment. Of course, a lot of places in the Bible talks about it. And the crucial factor is, are we in Christ? Question way in the back. Would you tell us about the church and Christians and what's happening with them in California? The church and Christians in California... Pastor said, are there any churches or Christians in California? Um, well, yeah, that's an interesting thing. This is, you're not the first one who's wondered about that, about our uh, bizarre left state. I mean, western state. Um, a lot of good things are going on uh, in terms of the gospel going out, churches being planted that are faithful to Christ. Uh, social pressure is increasing more, I think, for churches in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, which is politically and socially further to the left than at least what we see in San Diego County. I was saying to somebody this week, my, my hunch is that part of the reason that it's, we're not under the kind of pressure the churches in San Francisco are, for example, is that the large presence of the military in San Diego County uh, with the Navy and the Marines at Pendleton and uh, the Navy at uh, Camp Miramar, which is the Naval Air Station there. I think, and, and as a result, we have a lot of retired military who discover what the great weather is. In, in, and so I, I think culturally, San Diego has been a, a more culturally and politically conservative part of the state. But there are pressures building. Last year, there was a bill that was going to be introduced in the state assembly, uh, a bunch of the Christian, it, it had to do with education and higher education. Uh, and it was about ready to bear on the access to student loans for schools that upheld in their policies on faculty, staff, students, a biblical definition of marriage as between one man and one woman. Because, as the bill argued, that was discriminatory, it was unfair, and therefore these schools should be denied what other schools would have. It was defeated. It was withdrawn, actually, last year. Um, We're just kind of holding our breath to see whether it will come back this year or next year or the year after. So, yeah, there are pressures. But there's also freedom to preach the gospel, freedom to preach the whole counsel of God. Um, I tend to think that um, in some ways, being a, a bold and out, 
outward-facing church committed to the Bible in California is sometimes easier than being in parts of the country where everybody assumes that they're Christians because they all grew up in a church. The lines are sharper in California. People don't go to church out of habit in California. They go to church out of conviction, many of them. And that's kind of refreshing. I feel like we're already living a little bit more in the kind of situation that the first century church was living in with a, with a more increasingly surrounding pagan culture, but that makes the light shine more brightly when the darkness deepens around us. That may be a little over-the-top over the statement, but I, I think there's a truth to it there. Thank you for asking. Well, it looks like we're about done. I'll close in prayer if I may, or Sam, are you going to have something to say? Okay, let me close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again that we can approach this last book of the Bible with expectation and hope because it is a book meant to reveal, not to confuse, and because you promised to us a blessing as we take its words to heart. And Father, as we thought about this vision toward the end of the book, a vision that portrays, I believe, the, light, the time in which we live, in which the dragon is bound and his captives are being set free through the gospel, but also your people are suffering and people are dying for their faith. Father, thank you for the realistic hope that you give us in the vision of the thousand years, for the ultimate hope that you give us in the announcement of the great white throne judgment, when those who have opposed you will indeed face ultimate justice and those whose names you've written in the Lamb's book of life will enter into the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. We didn't look much at chapters 21 and 22, but what a beautiful, beautiful home you are leading us to where there is no more curse, suffering, sorrow, pain, disease, and where our joy will be to delight in your presence and enjoy the light of your presence for all eternity. Father, thank you for this word of hope to us and for this call to endure and to stay pure as those who belong to Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.